Welcome to High on the Hog with Merrill Schindler and co-hosts Joanna Belson and Janice Hardoon. This is a podcast about all things cannabis. Tune in every week as Merrill, Joanna, and Janice discuss the medical benefits of CBD and THC products with each other, as well as with informed guests from the cannabis industry and the lawmakers who regulate it. Enjoy the show. If this is High on the Hog, the podcast, we must be talking about the world of CBD, the world of THC, and with uh, Harry Nelson, author of The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain, an extensive, highly detailed look at where we are today. In our last hour, which you could find online, uh, we spoke about how we got to this point because it seemed like one day we're having a drink the next day we're having you know oxycontin in large quantities um and you were you were telling a story as we ended of how you got into it how you got into this world yeah so you know i i graduated law school in the 90s and i i clerked for a judge and i in hawaii for a, a year and i spent i spent a year intensely sitting through drug trials it was uh, there were cannabis growers were getting arrested on the uh, for growing in lava tubes. There were cocaine rings. There were mules bringing in heroin, and there was all this meth trafficking. So I was really interested in uh, in the whole on all the issues around drug trafficking. And then I, I I moved to Chicago. I started working for as a lawyer for large health systems, and I learned the whole world of DEA compliance from an advising standpoint, telling hospitals uh, everything they needed to do to comply for their hospital pharmacies. So I, I came to California in 2001, and at that point, I shifted from working for hospitals to working for doctors who were in trouble. And a number of these doctors were self-prescribers and uh, um, and had their own addiction issues. And they kind of led me, what happened was, the ones who got their licenses back and got into recovery brought me into this world of pain medicine, prescribing, and addiction medicine. And I started giving a lot of advice on um, on, on, on for people who were doing higher risk uh, kinds of prescribing. So I caught the attention of some people up in Northern California, the Drug Policy Alliance, uh, and a group called the Multi- Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. And uh, because of the work I was doing and some of the writing I was doing around DEA issues and my frustration with the war on drugs, I started getting asked to uh, petition the DEA for um, you know for for liberalization and for rescheduling of some substances off of the controlled substance list. So I was known for doing this work, and I had advised a number of doctors who were uh, recommending cannabis. Right, even though California decriminalized cannabis for medicinal purposes in '96, when I was doing this work in in the middle 2000s, the DEA was still actively coming after doctors who were. Uh, recommending cannabis and and so that that was my my involvement it, it was, was was there a sizable world of doctors recommending cannabis there were it was no it was you had to be a kind of a rebel uh you had to be willing to take chances back then so what happened was in 2009 president obama um uh, comes into office and there's a fight between the bush dea people who are still even after his um uh, election but before the inauguration the bush dea folks are raiding dispensaries, even though President Obama had said he wasn't going to allow raiding, he was going to respect California law. So what happened was uh, he he authorized Attorney General Eric Holder to make an announcement that California law was going to be respected, that the federal government was going to stop raiding dispensaries. And all of a sudden, my phone started ringing off the hook 
with uh, people who own dispensaries and, and some cultivators as well. And they were getting my name from, the, from people who knew my work around DEA issues. Uh, and at the beginning, I said to them, you know, I don't really know anything about dispensing cannabis. If you want to, you're a doctor, you want to recommend it, I can tell you everything you need to know. But this is, my world isn't dispensing. I, I don't know anything about it. Let me, let me find out who does. And what I quickly found out was that nobody was giving doctors, I mean, nobody was giving dispensaries good advice about how to comply with California law. There were criminal defense lawyers who had been doing the work for years of defending people when they got charged. There were a couple people doing, you know, what I would call political activist work of trying to push the boundaries, uh, but nobody was doing compliance work. So I, I, what I was it? Was the um, was the compliance clearly written, or was it completely a befuddlement? At that point, there all we had at that point was uh, from 2004. Uh, Attorney General, then Attorney General Jerry Brown, had mm -hmm. put out these guidelines, and they spelled out a a system. It was not, you know, I'm used to dealing with federal agencies where we have hundreds of pages of regulations that we have to parse out. In this case, we had about six pages of guidance from uh, Jerry Brown about what it was supposed to look like. Uh, but as we read through that, as I read through that as a lawyer, I, I and, and sort of applied my, the, my understanding of how pharmacies work and how uh, drugs and, 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 and health products work in other settings, I had a, it was a pretty clear framework to me uh, but when we started telling people about it, it was like brand new. Um, so I, I, we, we dove into this work in 2009. At the time, I had uh, other lawyers who, who told me I was crazy. They offered to defend me when I got charged. Because after all, as a lawyer, you can't do anything. You can't recommend or advise clients on breaking the law. And this was a case where helping people comply with state law meant that you were basically telling them how to violate federal law. And uh, there were some, it was, it was tricky. And you also had a real gangster culture. You know, there were a lot of people in the space back then who had been really, you could say, you could look at it two ways. On one level, they were courageous, right? These were the pioneers, the people who were out there cultivating and making products and, and selling in a time when that meant going to jail. Uh, but they were also, these were not, this was not, let's just say, the most necessarily uh, uh, the, the group that was really eager to be told, okay, here, here's the I's and, that you need to dot and the T's you need to cross. Um, and it was, a, it was a struggle, honestly, figuring out who our people were and who were the, you know, Also, what was... and with law enforcement was the same thing, the struggle of some law enforcement was very anti-cannabis and they were the ones that were coming to raid and yeah, that's, they didn't want to have any beliefs. Oh, totally. and so there was a total bias. Sit. It was a total bias in one way, but then you would find the sympathetic law enforcement agent that actually knew who was the pioneer and who was doing things right, and they would have some compassion for the activism that was going on. 100%. One of the, there was a famous uh, policeman in San Francisco back in the late 60s on Haight-Ashbury who was like famous for looking the other way. You know, everybody who's everybody's friend. He had the kids respect the kids respected him because he wasn't there to bust them for smoking that joint. Um, you know, he was just like like look away as the smoke enveloped him, and it was like a better way to deal with people. Honestly, it's funny as a lawyer. The way I think about it is, you know, it, it, it's easy for me to open up a, a, the law or the, in this case this guidance document from Jerry Brown and say, okay, here's this, what this means. It's a very different thing for law enforcement to understand it. And this whole area of cannabis was just such a, it was like such an un misunderstood area that, you, you know, the law enforcement police on the ground, 
uh, understood one thing. We had a different view of it sitting in our offices, reading the guidance statements. Judges who were hearing these cases thought something else. And it was it's really it was just a, a complete mess. Um, and so we would we I would give people advice. I'd say this is what the law says. But by the way, when when next time you the police come by your dispensary, uh, they may they may not agree with us. And and by the way, if you get charged, the judge may not agree with uh, with us either. We're just basically putting out what we think should be done here. But that you're you're, you're you always felt very clandestine walking into those little storefronts with uh, with the green cross on them. You know, you definitely felt like eh, the feeling wasn't far from walking into a porn shop that uh, I'm doing. You didn't want anyone to know you were going in. I take off the car magnets for my kids' schools when I go to the stores. I'll admit that. (laughs) Are you serious? It was. No, there was a feeling. Yeah, it's funny. It's been such a journey like to where we are today. But no, those early those it was it was not it was you could see you can still feel the movement, but it was. A strange experience. I mean, it's it's it was such a strange experience to come in and you have to go through, you know, heavy layers of security. Um, it doesn't look like any other product, but part of that was flowing from um, all this confusion and misunderstanding because it wasn't clear if you were a dispensary, it wasn't clear how you were supposed to uh, get your, you know, get get the products that people wanted. Right? People, you know, the market was clamoring for uh, for a lot of manufactured products. Um, but the, and that actually, you know, isn't and the, and what the law called for was these cooperative, nonprofit corporations to be set up where you were doing you were growing, and, vertically integrated yeah, is was, the word it, you're looking for. Thank you. A closed a closed loop where everything was happening inside one organization, and so it was like the law. The law didn't really make a lot of sense because how could you have a, sm- a small closed group that was going from seed to uh, you know product development. To retail, it just that's not the way anything else in our economy works. And you know, when government gets very involved, the rules sometimes get inexplicable to just about anyone dealing with them. Isn't there a Midwestern state where you go to the bar and you buy like you pay for a glass and and a napkin? You go next door to the um, the state-run liquor store, you buy your liquor there, and you bring it back to the bar to drink it. It's like that's called a corkage fee. <laughs> the, uh, not quite, not quite. It's a way of restricting old drinking. Fashioned. But of course, people manage to go, get through it. Uh, I mean, Joanna, you grew up in Pennsylvania. Those are state-run liquor stores, aren't they? Yep, still is. We, yeah. But we were fortunate to drive. Uh, we were on the border of New Jersey where we could see it across the river, and we would just go across to Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. But still, going to, I mean, the state-run liquor stores, which I've been in. They're called package stores. Package They're called stores. package In Alabama, there's a package store, and if you're on the Alabama-Florida Are those state-run? Yes, they are. Okay. You go across the Florida line, and their taxes were less than everything else. Yeah, but the, um, the selection always seemed decent, if not exactly, you know, f- fine wine I was of a young age, so I, you'd have to ask my sister what she was bringing out. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> Um, a friend browsing through a copy of the book I have, the copy I have at home, um, you know, got, got pretty involved with it and finally looked up at me and said, is there any hope? You know, he, he, he felt that things were just bad and getting worse. I, does the book suggest hope? I Look, I'm a very hopeful person and I try to... Uh, imagine what it, what our, what the pathway is that gets us out of this spiraling, uh, terrible cycle of death and addiction that we're in. 
And I, I personally believe we will get there, but it's going to be a long fight. I think we and and part of what I say in the book is we're not going. Our government is not going to get us there. Healthcare is not going to get us there. So the question then becomes, how are we going to do this? I think we really need to start with, you know, rethinking how we educate kids and changing the curriculum in our schools to so that we we raise a generation that isn't you know carrying around the shame that has the tools for living today that has you know that that a kid we have to teach kids mindfulness so that they have some uh, resilience and response flexibility that like you know we i started i think i do think our technology and our smartphones are part of the problem but I, and i think we need to really change our culture around shame so i don't think we can change this on a dime but i do think that we can we can make a difference and the other thing the other piece of it that's uh, uh, challenging to talk about is we have a healthcare system that is set up for late stage intervention because that's where all the money is, right? So mm-hmm. it's much better to we can we're very good at, at waiting till you have some advanced disease state, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and then we, we're ready to spend a fortune, right? Doctors and healthcare facilities are lined up, and and pharmaceuticals have products to help you deal with it. But we're very bad as a society at investing. On the front mm, end, good health, actually, and so we—that's a really a social choice, you know. I in the book, one of the things I, as I've been talking about the book, people ask me to sort of get into root causes, and one of my pet theories is that, you know, we talk. If you think about American exceptionalism, we are really distinctive in the world for our sense of freedom, and I, I'm I and I and that's one thing that I love about America. But I do think that we need to really look in the mirror and see that there's a shadow side to it. And the shadow side is that we're afraid to, we're afraid to uh, to really spell out what a healthy life looks like. I mean, we are the least healthy people in the world and stress is a huge part of it, right? You look at how we vacation and you also look at where we invest public resources, right? A lot of this misery, this human misery is about uh, lack of housing. It takes education. It takes uh, some focus on job training. A lot of this problem is worse in in the communities where jobs have gone away, like in West Virginia, in New England, in Southern Ohio, and communities have unraveled. And we do not seem to be prepared as a society to make these significant social investments that would move the needle. And uh, you know, I try to talk about this in an apolitical way, but. It, these it raises some fundamental questions of how we structure our society and where we invest, uh, and and so you know we talk these days in healthcare a lot of the talk is around this idea of social determinants of health that your health is determined by your education your you know your housing your environment and so and the and the problem is that because we haven't invested and we don't invest in those things we end up with a socially driven crisis where isolation. And, and all of these underlying social problems, despair, are driving this crisis. So I, I think it's solvable, but it's going to take some serious soul searching. Uh, and, and what I focus on in the book is really like, what can you do in your own family, in your life, in your workplace, in your religious community, in your kids' schools, and try to give people some tools to rethink this. And my goal ultimately was just to try and empower people. I, I One of the things that I hear from other people doing work around opioids around the country is there's this sense of powerlessness that we're just like stuck in this you know pile of shit you'll excuse my language but the uh uh, and and people don't have any tools or anything to do with it and so part of what i was trying to do was 
to suggest that, you know, it's it starts with awareness, but ultimately we need to give people language and we need to give people tools and resources and say, here's something that you can do. And I do think that we can make a difference. It's, it, do you remember the triggers that get kids into addiction are many and, and very tempting? Something as simple as, as a general sense of boredom, or a sense of malaise, uh, peer pressure is always out there. Um, you know, in school, the, the lecture on the dangers of opioids is like, you know, there goes, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Piano Bottom once again giving us a, you know, a lecture about something we shouldn't be doing. And it's like, you know, I can't wait to do it. Um, you know, there's so much temptation. And, you know, I mean, I'm blessed not to really know any kids who, well, not to know too many kids who have fallen into that. And when they fall into it, we have no idea why. So it's really it's really a mystery. Friends of my daughters, most of her friends are totally non-drugo. You know, it would take them two years to go through a bottle of, of rosé. But um, they don't smoke. And yet, um, a, few, a very few I personally you know, have, had, have had been in rehab. I can tell you, I, I mean, I, before I wrote this book, I had a handful of friends who had lost kids... To, uh, to suicides and overdoses, and I had had many friends with kids cycling through addiction, and, and as a result of writing the book, I, I probably uh, probably three three four times a week, I'm now meeting, uh, getting messages from people who have lost siblings, lost lost children, and 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 my fundamental feeling is they aren't these kids were not that different. They weren't. There's nothing different about them and my kids. I think I really think that uh, um, we're. This is a moment when we really need to to try and give our kids skills and 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 work because I think I think the kids are kids are all at risk. I don't think this is just about boredom. I think that I think we're living. Our kids are growing up in a different era uh, in terms of the 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 pressures on them, and I think that the 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 rate of anxiety and depression among kids is off the charts and and there's a big question like is it just that we're more aware of it uh what's going on um but i i I think look i think we're all at risk of this and again these decisions are made in this with a snap of a finger people make a decision to take their own life the data shows in a in a five to ten minute period so um so the question is how do you how do you arm uh how do you arm people with skills and 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 with uh, make them likely to reach out for help right and and to actually do something about it so for me one of the biggest quite things is how do we eliminate the shame right every time i talk to so many parents who lost kids and who have kids cycling through addiction and over and over again what i hear is it took me a while to figure out that my daughter had this severe anxiety she thought she was the most worthless person and, and, and that no one else was like this and she couldn't speak to me about it because she was so ashamed and so the question is how do you at least take that layer of shame away so that your kids reach out and the people are and, and that's not just you know even getting away from just family and children like how do how do we create uh, uh, environments where we feel safe to reach out to each other and and not feel judged for uh, and then comes that message from some your school through uh, through the internet you know, telling you what a piece of garbage you are, and whatever you've managed to build up, it's just it's just crushed. My daughter has worked both in high school and now in college for uh, teen helplines. She's always you know volunteered a, a, a few nights a week, and you know it, it's 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 pretty arduous. It's pretty it's pretty trying. Um, she hasn't been in schools where people have been at a at a lot 
on, had problems a lot, but still, they, they, as I said, they've been there. But I remember she said, we were speaking about suicide, and she said, you know, we like to say it's a, a permanent solution for a temporary problem. Yeah, it's terrible. People, the most yeah. of the data is that people regret is, it. You know, people yeah. who survive attempts regret it. I'll, I'll tell you that. Did you the, see a study a few years ago of people who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived? Yeah. Where across the board, it was like as soon as they went over, it was like, "What am I doing?" A hundred percent. By the way, you you said something that I I I, I there's a uh, something really powerful that affected me about this issue of what do you do with the cruelty around us and. Um, you know, I I struggled a little bit because I, I I would get I take I tend to like ignore all the compliments and just whatever criticism yeah. people sure. make of me just goes like straight in. And so I was watching Brene Brown has a special on Netflix right now called A Call to Courage, and I think it is a must watch. Uh, and one of the things she says that's so powerful is she says, like you know when you make your when you put yourself out there and you make yourself vulnerable, you are gonna there are a lot of people who are just kind of sitting back in the cheap seats who will hurl garbage at you and and who will and and you cannot you can't you can't let it close to you and what she says is the only people whose criticism should matter to you is the criticism of people who are also making themselves vulnerable and everything else you just have to let it drop to the floor and i and that was such a powerful message and i i and it's i've only heard that a couple weeks ago but i think i've i i I immediately forced my kids my older kids and my wife to watch this and uh, but I really think that is that's such an important message because we live in a society where people can spew hate over. On, we live on in an age of trolls. Social media and and the, so you just need to remind yourself this is coming from somebody who is just out in the cheap seats. This person is not. This is not somebody who's playing by the same rules I am, who's making themselves vulnerable, and who's being brave. And and I'm just not gonna. I'm just gonna let that drop to the floor. And I think that to me that was the most single helpful piece of um, advice that anybody said. You to, know what's you strange know. is how many worlds it happens in. It happens to all of us. It certainly happens to kids in school where they get you know, harassed and they get bullied on the internet. It happens um, in my world every day as Carrie. <laughs> um, it happens I'm a food writer. I'll do a column on a restaurant where I'll, I'll be like maybe not great about some dish. The hate mail I get is staggering. The um, uh, I I did an article a few months ago on some of the best pizzas in town, and it was like it wasn't just you should you should also have included this place. It was you are ignorant and worthless, and you know nothing unless, because you didn't put this place in. It was like well, it's just another place to put in. It's not a problem. People are angry these days, and they voice it silently at home and from they, their couch. They don't. They're not just say silent when they're on the internet. They're kind of screaming, maybe even in typing all so, capitals. Yeah. I don't know. I, for me, that advice was helpful, and I don't. I don't think it's. It's easy to say it. It's, but I think it's. I think we need to practice like recognizing those people who are just out there with nothing but ugliness, and and just letting them, letting they're gonna. We can't stop them from saying it, but we can. We can decide how we're gonna take it. It's funny that out of the things you said in going back to finding God or your spirituality, because I was sitting in Alabama two weeks ago. My brother's best friend from high school was a lawyer, just kept telling something was missing, something was missing. He's now clergy. He's now wow. a priest for Pesca, uh, Presbyterian Church in the South, whatever, in uh, Savannah, whatever. And I spoke to him, and whereas the news was coming out, didn't matter, fake news, real news, whatever news it was. And I said to him, you need to get some, you and some of your friends and kind of clear out some of this chaos and reach out to people because 
in my world, I kind of thought like whether it's a rabbi, it's a priest, it's a whatever you want it to be, someone is going to have to lead the young people here. Like somewhere or another, I, and even though that I own the cannabis store and I've been doing it for 12 years, it just didn't affect me that way and didn't affect my kids, but I was able to separate it. But right now there's so much chaos. And I mean, the same thing you feel, I feel too, because I feel like people just are constantly attacking me and not just the bureaus. It's like just out there, but is it the spirituality that everyone's kind of losing that kind of made you feel good? So I, I yeah. So it's interesting. I, I, I read a book that really um, I recommend highly. Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. It came out last year, and what he actually argues is he says ironic. The the bitter irony is that the success of liberalism as a uh, as an ideology was pushing back all the forces of repression. But ultimately, you know, the the last bastions of repression in our society were community, culture, family, and religion. And what's happened is we've stripped that away, right? If you read the Pew study, we are now largely an irreligious society, right? And and that's I think that's part of the human misery. So for myself, I, I, I didn't really have a lot of choice in the matter. You know, my dad is a rabbi. My grandfather's a rabbi. I was, everybody, even when I finished law school, people were like, when are you going to go to the you know, <laughs> seminary? Uh, but uh, um, so I, I, I grew up in it, but I, I definitely think, and by the way, we were talking on the last show about uh, recovery community. The same values in recovery community are the ones that I, that I experience in religious life. And one of the things, the best parts of the book for me, which what I didn't expect, was to have evangelical churches and uh, uh, synagogues around the country reaching out and, and wanting to get a message out there. And I think this is a unique moment when, you know, we're not going to make America religious again, but I think this is a moment for religious communities to speak out and to, you, you know, to really highlight what an opportunity they are. It's not for everybody. People have to find their own. It's mindfulness is what the words yeah. you said earlier. And I don't want to wrap up with Harry without talking about what we want to talk about, which was C- CBD and opioids. Yeah, Harry Harry Nelson of the United States of opioids, um, Janice Hardoon of the Antidote Across the Street, the CBD superstore, has often said it's what will get you off of opioids. So it's I think it's incredibly promising. The data that we have of how opioid deaths go down in places where cannabis and CBD are made available is irrefutable. Uh, we have we need to do more on that, but it's clear that when you open up access to cannabis generally, CBD in particular, uh, that that people are less likely to go to opioids. I personally work with a number of doctors and addiction treatment programs that are using cannabis to help get people off of opioids and and other drugs too. Um, and I think that it is a um, it's it's incredible to have access to it. Uh, it, it is a game changer and we need to be doing we need to be opening up more access and doing more research to support uh, this option it's not that cannabis is perfect but it's it's a heck of a lot better to is it the new methadone or is it even more than that you know methadone is a tricky subject to talk about methadone is an opioid uh, like oh. like uh, like buprenorphine which is the main ingredient in suboxone uh, uh, and so medication assisted treatment are those are those are important. I, 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 it's funny. I used to be uh, fairly anti-methadone, anti 
uh, Suboxone, when you spend a lot of time in addiction recovery community, the focus is on abstinence, and we people used to call methadone a replacement medicine, a substitute. Uh, um, what we're finding is that the crisis is so bad that we need to save lives, and the data shows that methadone, in the case of heroin, Suboxone, and other buprenorphine products, in the case of opioids, save lives. But they are they still have addictive issues. Of they're, course. They're You're moving from one addiction to another, right? So they are good fundamentally they are saving lives and our our health system is moving full speed ahead on trying to make them more accessible. And and I think on on balance on, on the whole that's a good thing. But if you were giving me a choice of if God forbid I had to you had I was I had to make the choice of what I had to take or what my kids would take, I would opt for uh, for cannabis and C B D. The problem is good luck finding doctors and programs we need a lot more work except for janice janice, for janice, 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 janice you're raising right. your hand but my question to you is is this problem of opiates a pharmaceutical is it the pharmaceutical industry that's the problem is it the doctors that's the pro- where's is it everybody so where? It, you know so in the book i i say it's first of all it's, it's multiple points of system failure but when you you can blame you can assign blame to government agencies to insurance companies there's lots of blame to go around the pharmaceuticals were bad actors but really the way i look at them is that if you think about that 40 we have a 40 year spiraling exponentially increasing uh, overdose crisis that what really the pharmaceuticals stepped in and they capitalized, they profited on it, but they didn't create it, right? They they just were essentially fuel on the fire, um, and they should pay the price for that. But we should not, it, it, while we while we're making them pay what likely is going to be trillions of dollars uh, to uh, you know for manufacturing and distributing these drugs, we should not lose sight of the fact that they are not the core problem. They are a problem, but the core problem is this social crisis. And until we deal with that, we're not going to solve this. And it's something that's dealt with in the United States of Opioids, a prescription for liberating a nation in pain by Harry Nelson, attorney at law. Your knowledge is staggering, just breathtaking. And you will be back to speak about what's happening next, because something's got to happen next. We we all know that. It's Harry, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Meryl. It's Meryl Schindler. It's Janice Hardoon from The Antidote. It's Joanna Belson from Studio City. (laughs) It's Phil Gian Grande. All here on High on the Hog, the podcast.